Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halastic. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halastic, and I'm co-founder of Financing Solutions. Over the last 25 years, I've built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range. Uh, two have been on the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the United States, and I can't tell you how important it is for businesses to have a line of credit so they can make an investment in their business or just even for unexpected emergencies. I can tell you over those years, it didn't happen often, but being short on cash is an entrepreneur's worst nightmare. And why? Why is it the worst? Because you got to make payroll. <laughs> you make If you don't make payroll, your employees get really worried. And believe it or not, it's against the law too. So um, that's what a good... Uh, that's why it's really important to have a line of credit. My business partner and I both recognized that 12 years ago. We just thought it was just torturous to deal with a bank uh, and and very expensive too. So uh, we just thought there was a better way. So that's why we came out with a, a great line of credit. And our line of credit program is easy to get in place. It's inexpensive when used, and it costs nothing to set up, making it a great cash backup plan. If you'd like to learn more about our line of credit program, please visit us at fscreditline.com. That's FS as, as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. Or give us a call at 862-207-4118. And if you apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. And just remember, the time to set up a line of credit is when you don't need it. That way, when you do need it, it's there, it's ready to go. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Eric Huberman from Hawk Media. Uh, Eric uh, is the CEO and founder of Hawk Media, which uh, was launched in 2014. It's now valued at over $150 million. Hawk Media is the fastest growing marketing consulting agency in the United States. Prior to its launch, Eric successfully funded, grew, and sold two e-commerce companies by the age of 26. Eric has since continued to strategically expand his business portfolio, inclusive of a handful of companies uh, uh, through acquisitions. And uh, in 2018, he launched Hawk Ventures, which reached a close and close single fund of $5.6 million. The 2020 launch of his own podcast, Hawk Talk, and the 2021 launch of Hawk Z, an agency offering brands the tools they need to tap into Generation Z. And also, he's most recently the author of, it, of uh, his own book, The Hawk Method, which I have. I I've definitely have read through it. It's really good. Uh, just an, kind of amazing good for people who are really uh, want to improve their marketing. So, Eric, uh, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. So today's, I, I love these type of podcasts uh, uh, where I get to talk to somebody who's really grown something, you know, big. And 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 the reason being is that, you know, I have sometimes consultants on and I have other people, you know, it, it's, I you learn a lot from experience, don't you? Yes, <laughs> I would say right? that's a statement. <laughs> I mean, if, 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 if you haven't, well, if, if you're listening to people who haven't done it, okay, it's, you don't know if it's real or not. No, and I that, think, that is an issue. You can, people love to give advice when they have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. 
So like, so let me ask you a question. And I, you know, someone had said this to me once and they said is, did you ever think that you would, um, would do what you did? Did you know, in business, did you? Um, you know, I never, it wasn't thought of in the same way that it came out. Like a lot of people think they're going to be rich or they're going to like, they think about the outcome. And to me, it was never the outcome. I thought I would run a business for sure. From a young, young age, I thought I would probably end up running some sort of business. What that would be, who knew? Yeah. I had no idea. And, yeah. But, but yeah, I always thought I'd be an, and the word entrepreneur was not in my vocabulary until much, much later, but I always thought I'd be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Now, um, and I, I did too at the age of 17. I thought I, thought I was going to go to work for a big company, um, go uh, learn a lot, and then go out and start my own company. And this is exactly yeah. what happened. And I think that's, you know, it's unusual, right? I mean, people don't usually think that far out when you're 17 you're thinking about right. something else right uh or, yeah. or whatever and it was now i think it's common i think that the you know sort of sex appeal of entrepreneurship kicked in in like the like 2010 2012 yeah and then you started to hear the word a lot now i see a lot of high school kids talking about being entrepreneurs but no not when you or i were kids it was not a normal thing it was yeah. not not much at all oh yeah i'm a little older than you and um and so you know what started it in my generation was Bill Gates and Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and um, and the movie Wall Street. Uh, and yep. those were the, you know, uh, I, I grew up in the 80s and that was the the that was the, the money generation. They, they just they really wanted to make money. But that know? was getting a job on Wall Street. That was an, even entrepreneurship. Um, yeah. No, but that yeah. was on Wall Street. But, you know, but Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, the entrepreneurship that was behind there, yeah. that was the start yeah. of the tech industry. Yeah. Uh, so that, no, there was entrepreneurship there too. I'll tell you what the difference is now. And the difference is now is that it's the angel funding money and it's all of the investments. It's, it's you know, you don't need to build the business through organic growth anymore. Right. Although I think it's the biggest strategy that kids nowadays or young people uh completely forget they think that they have to raise money right and i mean people forget the idea of an expected value where it's like yeah you can raise money and then you can you know you have the propensity to maybe grow faster and be bigger but the the chance of failure is a lot higher when you don't bootstrap as well because you're living off other people's money and that can dry up and if you haven't built a business model Whereas bootstrapping, you have no choice but to build a good business model. So then it can just ebb and flow with the you know growth or shrinkage of how you're building the business. But it's just, it's usually sustainable at the gate if it's bootstrapped. Yeah, I agree with you too. And I think the other part about it is 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 most people don't they don't get the idea. See, they don't most people don't understand when you get into an angel funder. Forget about fans, friends, and family. That's a different story. Yeah. When you get into angel funding and venture capital, you know they're they want to get. 10 times the amount of money out, mm-hmm. right? At least, right? And so therefore your idea had better be, uh, have some scale to it. Yep. Because they're not going to be interested in it. Yeah. One of my favorite, my dad used to say it to me when I had no idea what he was talking about was uh, raising money is expensive. Because <sighs> the other yeah. side of that is you have to pay someone 10 times their money. And let's say it's a, uh-huh. you know, usually there's an up to 10 year horizon on that. So you're paying someone, I don't know what that compounded interest is, but it's exorbitant versus a loan or whatever else you can do to finance the business if you're confident where it's going. Like, yeah, VC money. And as you mentioned, our first fund, we just closed our second fund and announced 25 million of it closed, but still continuing to raise. So it's 
it, we have, you know, we're doing a lot of investing, but I will say when you're investing because you need to capture the market and grow quicker than everyone else, it makes sense. If you're doing it to sustain your business, it's probably a mis- you're probably the wrong person for that business. Yeah. Well, so listen, today our podcast, right, is is geared toward my podcast is geared toward helping businesses that are smaller get over this $10 million mark. And, you know, mm-hmm. the reason why that $10 million mark is there is because that's when a company starts getting interesting, right? Yep. Like it starts getting interesting to others. People are maybe you might be able to sell it at that point. It certainly depends on the industry you're in. But, you know, at the $10 million mark, you've kind of built processes and procedures. You have a team together. Um, so a lot of the listeners are listening to right now are people who are smaller, right? And, they're, and they want to get over that level. And so can you remember back in the day when, uh, when you were three, four million and what that was like? Yeah, definitely. Um, very founder led. Uh, you're doing a lot of everything as the owner. You're probably driving most of the revenue and, you know, depending on the business. But if it's a B2B business, if you're the CEO, you probably have to drive most of the sales and most of the revenue at that point. There's no infrastructure. You've got employees, but not many. It's, you know, you're just getting going. You're trying to figure out it still feels like a startup. What was the inflection point when you when you were at that point, but then you made a big leap? What changed? So there wasn't any real big leap. It's actually been, you know, pretty consistent growth. Uh you know, quote unquote exponential, but similar percentage growth. Um, so, but I would say that one of the bigger inflection points around that time was we were, we did 5 million, our third year business, 10 million, our fourth. And halfway through that fourth year, we were at about, let's say a seven run rate or whatever, eight run rate. I was, this is a, the most pretentious thing, but I've told the story before, but it's true. I went on a trip to Monaco to the Grand Prix and, uh, I was sitting at the Fairmont in Monaco, which overlooks the whole bay, looking at all these $500 million boats. And I was like, you know, not that I want one, but at the rate I'm working right now, I was driving 85% of the revenue at Hawk. And we had a small sales team, but I was still by far the you know rainmaker. And I was like, if I keep this up and I'm the guy that does this all, I'll never be able to afford one of those. Not that yeah. I want one, but like this doesn't scale. I'm capped out. I'm working. I work day and night. I take vacations here and there, but like there's, there's no more. I can't generate more revenue. So uh, I've capped efficiency too. So I'm like, so I got to change something. And so from there, I basically ripped myself out of sales. I was like, I have to be able to scale and add people to this. So I started hiring people and building that side of it because there was nothing sustainable about what I was, or not, I shouldn't say it was sustainable if I just wanted to work hard the rest of my life and just have a five to $10 million business, but to grow it was impossible. And so it, we took a little bit of a dip the next couple months because they did not close deals like I did. But basically, I said, all my leads now are going to the sales team and we're going to scale the sales team. And again, took a couple months, but then we got back on track and have been a lot bigger ever since. Yeah, you know, I, I used to use, I, I say, would say this uh, scenario to a, a lot of my friends who own businesses. So, so as I mentioned to other podcasts, I belong to the entrepreneur organization um, I, and I, I've been with the same group of business owners for over 20 years with so 10 different business owners. And, um, and, and we would go on these retreats uh, once a year. It was required that we went on this retreat and we went to great places. And uh, but we would con- we would do business on these retreats and then we would have fun. And um, and o- a lot of the guys in the group were just tied to their phones and I'd be on the trip and, you know, I'd be all relaxed and they'd be all stressed out. And, you know, one of them said to me, aren't, aren't you worried about what's going on back in your business? And I was like, no, 
if because if I've done my job right, they know what they're doing. And if they they don't, then I've done a crappy job of running a business. And so I think that's a good indicator. Could you go on a vacation for a week for or for two weeks? And would your business run the same, if not better, than when you're there? So no, it's, it's an important exercise. And that's something you, we've thought about. We built our team that way from, we're tried to from the beginning. Like there's never been a point in my business that I couldn't take a vacation. And I think that's such a, it, it, some founders wear it as like a uh, show of pride of like, I haven't taken a vacation in five years. It's like, so you're running your business poorly. Because yeah. it's not just about the vacation. It's also about, again, scalability. If you're that critical in your business and you can't find a way to, take a step back and go do something else, you're running it poorly and you're never going to be able to grow it. You can't focus on scale. You can't focus on expansion, which is something I've been able to do pretty much from the beginning because again, we focused on that. We made sure that we could do those kind of things. Yeah. And I, I like what you said too. It's not just, this isn't about you going on a vacation okay, no. and having a nice vacation. This is about, did you build the processes and procedure and you have the people in place because if you don't, if you can't do that, you're not going to scale. You're not going to scale to 150 million dollars. Certainly, you're not going to scale over 10 million dollars. You, you know, it's got to be more than just you going out there and pounding the pavement, right? Yep. Yeah, and that's and unless that's what you want. But like again, like I'm a big believer in like especially in entrepreneurship, you choose whether you want to be an entrepreneur or not. So this is all be here by choice. Yes, it's hard. What you chose it. Number two, you choose how to run your business. And so if you decide I'm going to be grinding to make sure that everything works all the time and I'm going to, then don't complain when you want to get away and you can't. That's how yeah. you build your business. Now, what do you think the difference is between then when you were three, four million, you know, on your way to seven million and the, and the way you think now? It, it's to that point. Like, you know, it's not, if I am, if my own input and my own uh, work is critical to the survival of the business I'm failing. And like that took, there was that inflection point that I mentioned, but then it, and it, listen, it evolved over time. Like I have to have a team that can run this. We're 350 people now. So like if it takes me to run, like I even think about this cause like it's been, I've been working, I, I work hard and I've been working harder than I ever have recently. I shouldn't say it. there's been waves of this, but I've been grinding. We launched a book, we closed a venture fund, we closed three acquisitions all in the past two weeks. So like, it's crazy. And I'm working really hard. And I was like, I'm working really hard right now. Am I doing this because I've just landed a bunch of growth and it's just on me? Or am I doing this because I screwed something up? And in this case, it's because just a bunch of things landed at the same time. But I reflect on that always because, well, you know, I, sh I should be able to step away. And to that point, I'm leaving Friday for 10 days to go to Europe with my wife. Like I still, in, I, a year into business, we almost sold it, decided not to. And one of the things my partner and I talked about, like being, what would we have done if we sold? What's that look like? And I was like, well, I want to go travel the world, see some cool places. So I said, I'd go on two or three really cool trips a year. And my partner wanted to play golf every other Wednesday morning, make it sustainable. So we're not like selling or in a rush to sell for some outcome that we could just do right now. And so now we're in a place where, yeah, there's a ton of work to do, but I have a lot of people to help with it as well. And I continue to make sure of that because if it gets back to a point where I'm driving, well, I got to probably fire two thirds of the team because I can't personally support 350 people with my work. They have to be working. Yeah. I mean, 350 people for a marketing company, that that's challenging. I mean, that's a lot of people. 
and with the tur- and, you know with the the turnover regardless of what it is i mean how long did it take you to like what was the growth pattern from the now people you hired like was it a 3 year period 10 year period how how what was that growth period for how many employees you had i mean it's linear i mean again it's exponential there was like 17 35 65 100 yeah I remember 150 200 yeah whatever i don't i haven't spaced it out but it's something like that where it just yeah scale. so what's what's hawks made um not magic sauce but yeah what what is why is the growth so exponential what is it that you're yeah. doing that your competitors are not like most things it's pretty simple 99% of marketing agencies are full of shit so we can weed out 99% of the competitors out of there just by doing good work and doing what we say we're going to do sincerely. Um, that's not an exaggeration or hyperbole. It's about 99%. So once we get rid of those, the other 1% generally go up market. So they want long contracts, high minimums. They only want to work with the Fortune 2000. They don't want to work with small and medium businesses. So basically, we are one of the most prominent, well-known, credible agencies that will still work with small and medium businesses. And so... We're good at great at what we do, and we're easy to work with. We're accessible. That's that's it. It's it's you know we we basically talk. Another way we put it is Fortune 100 marketing for the masses. What what size businesses are you getting involved with? All size. We started two grand a month, so I would say a business shouldn't hire anyone in marketing, outside, inside, whatever, until they can afford to spend about ten grand a month on marketing. Yeah. But up until then, welcome to being a founder. Go make some money, or raise some money. Um, and at that point we can enter. And again, we started two grand a month in fees and scale from there. We've got, you know, clients as startups. We've got fortune 100 clients. Yeah. The good thing about that model is you have a great feeding mechanism for mar- for getting clients, because if you get in there at $2,000 a month and that company grows, they're probably going to stay with you because you help them grow. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's almost yeah, like dude. a lead. It's almost like a lead generation strategy. Yeah. In some ways I'd say it's less about, if they, they, they do stick with us at Big Row, and that's been great too. But it's also, you realize that, you know, while why a lot of companies go away from them is a lot of them churn. A lot of small businesses don't make it. A lot of people, early businesses take the most time, take the most handholding, et cetera. But out of that sort of core cohort, there's a percentage of them that are really good, solid businesses, founders, et cetera, that we end up working with a long time. So same kind of thesis where it is a top of the funnel strategy, but it's uh, it's more about, the right partners than it is necessarily that some of them skyrocket. That happens too, but mm-hmm. we there's a bigger portion of them that maybe they don't end up being the next billion dollar company, but they're still a great client. We grow them consistently, and it's that piece too. How has um, I, how has COVID changed your business uh, for the better, or for the worse, whatever? I mean, yeah. if COVID hadn't happened, right? What 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 wouldn't have changed? And since COVID happened, what's going to stick? Yeah, it's the work remote and everything that comes with that. So we had a massive office in LA. It was expensive. It was beautiful. Uh, it, you know, we had 90% of our people here in LA and then small offices in Boston, New York, and Baltimore. And uh, we ended up, we ended up uh, getting rid of the office through a vote and deciding to go remote. And so it allowed us to hire all over the country. It allowed us to start looking at expansion faster. So we were able to expand into Canada and to uh, the UK pretty easily. And it's allowed us to really look at you know this at, from a national and global scale a lot faster than opening physical offices all over the place. 
So, so we talked just briefly about um, what your attitude was like when you were 3 million, 5 million, you know, a little bit versus, you know, what you look at right now. And I, I, if, if I think I heard you correctly, uh, you were, you, you, you know, one of the things you said was, you know, having other people do the work, right. Which is a no brainer at 350 million, uh, 350 employees, right. You, you, you know, the owner can't do the work. Um, so, what, where, where else do you think your mindset is different now? Uh, you also mentioned, you know, you work your way back. So you, so you say, this is what I want my life to look like. And so yeah. now, you know, this is how I'm going to design my business around what that and my business partner wanted, right? He wants to go golfing. Yeah. You want to travel three times a year, right? Again, not about the travel or the golfing. It's more about, and th- there's a good note on that. A friend of mine runs an agency. Actually, he sold it, but he was running an agency that, uh, he paid his employees to take a one-week vacation a year. Yep. But they couldn't answer their email and they couldn't answer their cell phone because that meant there was no key point of failure. Yeah. If I could get my people to just go away for a week, someone else got to pick up the slack, then everybody is redundant to everyone. And if someone quits or whatever, we're fine. Yeah, and that was a really smart way of building that capability. Yeah, it's like uh, Tony Hirsch from uh, uh, Zappos. You know, he that's a different... Tw- what your friend did is a different twist. When he said... Tony Hirsch would uh, pay people to quit. He paid yeah. them $12,000 to quit. You mean Tony Shea, right? Tony Shea, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tony, exactly. Because it's more expensive to keep an employee that doesn't want to be there than it yeah, is. To- yeah, And I've yeah. actually I've actually done it. Uh, I actually did a tour of the facility with, uh, with his second in command, um, but, you know, uh, before Tony passed away. And, uh, you know, it's crazy there. I mean, people are evangelical evangelica about that organization they they are just so bought into it and uh it's gonna be interesting to see if if you know how that's gonna change now that he's not there anymore but yeah. um well he hasn't been there i don't think he's been there for a while yeah you're sure. correct right yeah. he, had, he had left and uh, yeah yeah uh he, well he had moved on to not labor the point but he had moved on to a different position at amazon and then he then he moved on but um, so, you know, what what is a typical day like? Like, what do you like to do now? Uh, grow, expand, strategize. I mean, that's promote, just to be honest. So that my job is basically threefold and it's been that way for a while. And I think it'll probably be that way for a long time, which is about a third of my time is spent on how do we expand and grow, whether it's M&A or strategizing other organic growth channels or figuring out other, our fund, our capital arm, where you mentioned working capital, we do uh, revenue financing for our clients too. Um, and so th- these are all pieces that continue to find ways to grow off of what we built. Number two, promotional, wrote my book recently, just came out last week. So talk method, um, putting together information, things that can help us get the name out there, being on podcasts, things like that. And then a third of my time with my team, strategizing, figuring out how to make things better, dealing with problems uh, that come up because there's always going to be something and really continuing to try to hone in on how to make the business better, how to enable my executives, that kind of thing. What do you think your what about your partner? You have a business partner, correct? Yeah. And yep. uh, one one person? Yeah. Okay. And where do you where do you think his time is spent? He's more he, so for a long time he was my implementer. He was my COO. I'd come up with ideas, growth, etc., tee things up and he'd take them over. Uh, then we grew a lot. So we brought in a more uh, senior COO with experience. 
he's he moved into more of like still the implementer on a lot of the bigger or the more expansionary ideas as well as a fixer where it's like oh we have a big issue in this side he's he knows the business thoroughly so he can jump in you know oh sales is slumping a little bit we need to figure that out he can jump in with them and figure it out so he's been really helpful on taking the reins on things to make to fix yeah and his handicap probably has gotten a lot better too right Oh, he's a scratch golfer. With, <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. This is a good example. He does not play golf every other Wednesday morning anymore because he has three kids now. When we uh-huh. set those priorities, there were zero. And uh-huh. so you 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 got to remember, like, it wasn't about the golf. Um, it was about the, uh, the ability to be flexible, the ability to do things we want to do along the way and turning this into a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Now, you, you said you're you're growing also through acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So what type of companies have you been looking to acquire? Mostly performance marketing agencies, mostly people that are complement to us to expand territory to, and sometimes to expand capabilities. Um, if we, there's something we don't do, like an audio agency or an affiliate agency we've acquired, you know, there are certain things we didn't do that we now do because of these acquisitions. And you, we bought a web agency because they complemented what we did. We worked with them a bunch and went, this is great. Why don't we just do it together? And we've built a pretty good engine and platform. Uh, and again, territory as well, expanding around. Uh, it's great to have people on the ground in certain places. Um, and then sometimes it's just, you know, they want to have a bigger platform. It's a good person. It's neither of those benefits, but it's still a good one. And then we also recently acquired a software company we'll be announcing, but uh, that's part of it too. A lot of times it's the buyer build thing. It's do we start from scratch and do this ourselves or skip a few steps and spend some money on it? If, if you had to identify, I'm sure you have, what the culture is of of Hawk, what would you say it is? I think it comes down to our core values, which is get shit done, learn quickly and be cool. So people that execute are uh, really bright and are also great to be around. Good people that know how to execute and are, can keep up with things. That's meaning like keep up on the intelligence side. That That's really the, the gist of it. Um, and so we, we really have a spirit of like execution, getting it done, checking it off, moving on to the next thing. Cause I think that is critical in marketing Then learning quickly. Cause the market's always changing. Everything's changing constantly. You have to keep up and also just being able to read data, being able to understand things. You have to be quick on the uptake and then be cool. We're a people business. We work with people all day, our clients, ourselves, et cetera, partners we need to have good people that are good to each other. So when you've acquired these companies, <clears throat> do you think that their culture of their company is staying put or do you think that they're starting to take over uh, the culture of Hawk? Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, the culture constantly changes in terms of the uh, the feel of it. It's it's kind of like growing up. Like my, my business partner said this pretty well, where it's like college was a really fun time in my life. It's not, we're not in college anymore. So my personality, my needs, my priorities have definitely changed. Yeah. Same thing in business. It's, you know, we're... As you grow, as you build, as you expand, your priorities change, your things shift, the way you work shifts, and that's okay. It's not a bad thing. And so I think, do we adopt some of the culture? I mean, every individual has a uh, input into the culture. So when we acquire companies, I think there's a mesh depending on it blends. But I also don't think culture is this like hard to find thing versus a kind of fluid thing that's always changing depending on what's going on in the world. World of you know world events affect culture in a big way too. Yeah. And business, right? Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, I was on my, one of the companies I had had, um, 
we were on our way. So we'd gone from 1 million to 3 million to 5 million to 7 million. We're on our way to 11 million. And then, um, and then the, uh, uh, the housing recession hit uh, and, and just destroyed the industry. We were, we were in housing, but that, the, the, that was the last recession. And uh, the industry that I was in, which is a $13 billion industry, went down to $7 billion. And so, you know, the yep. re- revenue went the opposite way. So I've, I've been in my share of getting caught up in recessions. And then it's, it's if you're a smaller organization, it's really harder to absorb that. Uh, yeah. You, you know, you have less room. Yeah. It's, it's uh, how do you put it? It's really hard to shrink as a business, especially if you don't have giant coffers. Like losing revenue, you're going to have to cut. But when you don't know where that revenue loss is going to end, you don't want to keep cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting. And it's like, it is, it is a really tough thing for a lot of businesses. Yeah. And what happened too was like, it was interesting. So we were, we were at uh, 7 million on our way to 11. And one of my good friends, um, uh, who's a competitor to, to mine, he, he was at, uh, he was at 60 million. Um, and, and then I went from, you know, 11 million down to 7 million, down to 3 million, down to 1 million. At 1 million, it wasn't worth it, right? Yeah. But yeah. He, w- he went from 60 million basically down to 30 million, but he was still, he still had room, right? Yeah. He, he, he was okay. Now, let know what happened. Seven years later, he brought, he was able to get the company back up to 100 million and then he sold it. And, uh, and we were a good company. So, you know, being able to handle recession, like, so has, has Hawk been through uh, a major recession yet? No, we're eight years old. So 2014. So no, I mean, and again, depends what you call a major recession. Was the beginning of COVID a major recession? No, it depends on the industry. It depends right. on the industry you're in, right? <laughs> if you're in the restaurant industry, you better believe that COVID was a pretty big and think, Yeah, And that's the thing is I think people use the global macroeconomic terms to justify problems in their business. People thrive, like you, you say the restaurant industry, but I have friends that owned restaurants that thrived in COVID. I so it's it. like, it, yeah. So there's been time, like the beginning of COVID, we had 25% of our clients fire us in the first two weeks. So yeah, it was a tough couple of weeks. We found ways to re- adapt and uh, turn around. My industry, I think, was down forty percent in twenty twenty. We were up twenty five. Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, it it just depends on how you look at that. That being said, I am curious to see what a, a total recession looks like. I think a lot has changed since the two thousand eight recession when it comes to marketing. And so the the interesting thing is now cutting off marketing is actually a death sentence for your business versus being a nice to have pre last recession. And so I think a lot, it's going to be very different this time around and what people cut, how they adapt, et cetera. Because you can't yeah. just cut off your marketing when you're in a digital first landscape anymore. Yeah. That's cutting off your foot traffic. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about your book, The, the Hawk Method. It's H-A-W-K-E, by the way. Um, so, you know, I think one of the biggest differences that I see in small businesses is a lot of people who start uh, their businesses, they're, technici- they're technicians, so to speak. They're not marketing people. Like you, you have that people who are marketing. And, those, and I think those companies tend to grow well because you have a marketing person who's the head of the company. Um, but a lot of times you'll have you know, somebody who's an engineer who's created, made this product, but he didn't spend that time or she didn't spend that time. She doesn't, 
they don't do the marketing. They, they just build the business through word of mouth. They don't really have a marketing strategy. So what, you know, when I was reading through your book, I mean, one of the things that I thought about, I was like, now I'm a marketing guy. So, you know, for me, uh, you know, a a lot of things here, you you resonated. Um, But I wouldn't exactly be honest is, is I wouldn't take this book and say, Oh, I'm going to read it because I need help in marketing. Right. It's already a strength of mine. I, so, but there was something that you you had in here, which was called the marketing tripod, right? Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us about the marketing tripod? Yeah, it, it basically it's the three principles of marketing. It's the book's subtitle. Um, the idea is you have basically three sort of legs to the tripod in marketing that if you don't do all of them, the entire thing collapses like a tripod. So awareness, nurturing, and trust is what that comes down to. So awareness being how do you create new awareness that your company exists, whether it's advertising, word of mouth, PR, etc. Like how are you getting the word out there just to let people know you exist, not to get customers, but to get people where you know you exist. And then nurturing is what do you do from when someone become, knows you exist to when they actually become a customer and then post-purchase? How do they continue to come back? Because lifetime value is the biggest driver of success in a business. You have to keep them coming back. You have to merchandise right and market right to keep your customers and serve them right. And then trust, also synonymous with brand is, you know, it, there was a study done that 75% of people don't buy from a company they don't inherently trust. Early on, when you haven't built a brand, that trust comes from third-party validation, referrals, testimonials, reviews, PR, influencer marketing, et cetera. And then over time, you can build a brand through consistency of delivery to that people start to know you for you. And that's how you can build trust as well. And so it's about building awareness, nurturing, and trust. And what we look at when we're analyzing companies' marketing is what piece are they failing on or coming up short and where should we focus on? And we're looking at their conversion rates and all these different metrics to see which bucket should we focus on? And then in that bucket, what are they doing wrong? Whether it's the different tactics or taking on the different platforms, et cetera. Yeah. I, so I, there was a, one of my favorite books of all time. It, it had the biggest impact on my business was called um, the inside advantage. It's not well known. It's by a guy named, by his name is Robert Bloom. And Robert Bloom started um, Publicis, which became the largest advertising agency in the world. I, I, happened, to, uh, I happened to meet him. And, and I took that book. It was a really small book. It was great. Uh, I love small books. And, uh, and as a team, we implement what he was talking about. And I think for a lot of my listeners, I... If you're not great at marketing, I would recommend that you take uh, get this book, The Hawk Method. It's again, it's H A W K E, and I would recommend that you read every chapter and you implement it, and read it and implement it. I I really think that if you want your business to grow to be over ten million dollars, that if you don't just read a million books, read one book like this and execute it. And, and that, you know, I tell you what I, the thing I really love about is how much time you spent on the idea of measuring um, the value of a client. Like what, what's the long-term value? I think yep. if you start at the end first, and if, if I tell you, if I looked at a company and I used to do some angel funding, if I look at a company and if I said to the owner, What's the long-term value of your client? What's the dollars and cents long-term value? And if they knew what it was, right, I knew that they knew what the hell they were doing. 
Right. Yeah. And by the way, I never, I never got a good answer for that question. You no, know? people are pretty bad about it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it literally is the most, it's what every private equity firm is going to want to know if they're an investor to you. And there's a reason for that. It's how much is a client worth? Like you will make shitty decisions unless you know that number. Like yeah. you will not understand your, you do not understand your own business if you don't know what a customer is worth to you. Yeah. And also I think it tells you uh, that you've done, that you're doing well in marketing because you can't come up, you don't know where to spend the money in marketing if you don't know. If you don't know how much money you're making from a client, you don't know, you you got to know the cost of acquisition for that client too. So I, you know, I really, exactly. lo- I like what you said in the book and I was like, oh, you know, this is really a practical book to me. That was um, the idea. It's supposed to be an easy read and read it in an afternoon and get, you know, have a nice overview of marketing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so many people don't. It's such an opaque industry for m- people that are not marketers. Yeah. Now where, where are you headed next? Um, uh, like uh, as far, as far as you personally, where, you know, what, what do you think is going to, where this is, where's this all going to go? Uh, you know, it's funny. People think that marketing is like this fast moving, ever changing thing and it changes and there's some quick to move, but I mean, Facebook and Google have been like the golden goose of marketing for now, what, 12 years? Like, it's not that quick. So where do I think it's going? I think AI will continue to play a part in it. And that's something we're looking heavily into. I think, you know, the change in cookies and a cookie-less future, so to speak, is going to be interesting and going to shake things up a bit. But I think generally people are, you know, consumer spending is not going anywhere. So I think it's going to be figuring out how to continue to figure out how to adapt with the tools change to continue to reach your audience when you need to nurture them along the way and get them to a customer and bring them back. Like it's, that's, what's nice about the method we put together and the way we work is like, whatever the tools are, those will shift over time, but not as fast as people think. And I think TikTok's going to have, you know, be really interesting over time. And I think there's a lot of opportunities out there, but I also think people need to be careful not to chase shiny objects and like, you know, focus on what's working, double down, be surrounded by smart people that can understand marketing and keep going with it. Have you and your business partner talked about um, what would what you would do in your business if a major recession came in and it dropped forty percent in your business? Have you talked about that? Oh yeah, uh, many times. Um, we you know having contingency plans is a big part of what I learned, frankly, with COVID. Is like just have a plan so that if or when it happens, you don't have to scramble to come up with something. You already know the plan. It takes a lot of the stress out of it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I also think our business is built for a recession. We're flexible, we're cost effective, we're a great solution. I actually don't know that a recession is bad for my business because I have a couple assumptions around that. One, we're more cost effective than most of the other big agencies or hiring in-house. So we're a good option when you're trying to cut, save money. Number two, we are, um, we are built to be flexible already in the way our business works. So shifting in industries that are recession-proof, and et cetera, are doable for our business versus a lot of other agencies. Um, and actually, and and then three, what I mentioned earlier, I don't think in a recession marketing gets as hit as it used to. I think people realize that like, there's going to be irrational people and bad managers that cut marketing, but I think good operators have realized, especially through COVID, you can't just cut marketing in a recession. So I don't think, I think we might have some decline, but not, I think a 40% drop in business would be pretty unlikely at this point in the way we operate. Okay. Um, I've asked you a, f- a number of questions. What what do you what question that I haven't asked you that's on your mind that you kind of do want to say to our, our listeners? 
Yeah, I kind of alluded to it. And, you know, being the it's about the entrepreneurship journey. I, I mentioned, you know, being an entrepreneur is a choice and to take ownership of that choice. But I think it's super important to understand that as an entrepreneur, you're signing up to deal with the biggest problems the company has on an ongoing basis. And as you grow, those problems get bigger. And so being aware of that, conscious of that and accepting that and also understanding that as a choice, I think is what a lot of entrepreneurs miss. And so you hear about how stressful and depressed and everything entrepreneurs get. I'm not talking about the chemical stuff. I'm talking about the more rational side. And it's like the, the problem is like you chose to do this. So I think it's really, really important for business owners to remember this is a choice. You signed up for this and this is what you signed up for. And so accept it because then it becomes a lot more fun. It's just par for the course. It's the next issue you have to deal with. It's part of it. You just keep chugging along and doing it. It makes it a lot a lot more enjoyable, a lot easier to handle, and it makes you think more rationally. And I think that's critical. And I got the advice early on that I, I was having a huge problem in my business like a month in. I thought I was going to lose everything. Called my dad and went on a five-minute tirade about everything going wrong. And after five minutes of like pouring my heart out, he goes, yeah, that shit happens all the time. I got to run, talk to you later, and hangs <laughs> up on me. And I was like, "That that's we joke about it all the time in the business now. Like, that shit happens all the time. Like, Whatever the next thing is, just be ready that like it's going to happen because it's also an expectation thing. If you expect that you're going to get you know hit off ground, going to get your leg sweeped out from under you once in a while, then when it happens, you're like, oh yeah, that was this. Okay, let's get to work. Yeah, what's interesting is when you see someone who's experienced um, at, 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 at building a company, um, the the. the there's they're almost built of rubber where you know things will be thrown at them and they'll they'll just handle it with more grace or more uh, uh you know understanding i you know uh i i this i don't know if this is the best analogy but if you ever watch the sopranos right and um that there's tony uh, uh gets into uh he goes into the hospital and yeah. because I, he had gotten shot or something like that so he's in a hospital and he's he's under, right? He's he's not able to function as the head of the family. And so one of the guys, the second in command, has to take over for, for Tony. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, Sopranos is hilarious. And everyone's coming to the second in command with these problems. And and you know, he's like pulling his hair out and he's like, Oh my God, how does Tony do this? And there's, you know, it's all these crazy little stupid things. Right. And then Tony gets better. Right. And, and his second in command um, uh, comes to kind of debrief Tony about what happened. And Tony's like, Oh yeah, that's don't worry about that. That's bullshit. Or yeah, he's just complaining about that because of this or yeah, that's, don't, that's, that's, that's insufficient. It was like no big deal. Right. And uh, our wives aren't being threatened, even though it might feel like it at times. And I think that's the part that you have to learn. It takes a long time to learn. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, experience means a lot. And, you know, you, you know, there's that book tipping point about the idea. I think it's tipping point where it takes 10,000 hours to become a professional at something. Right. And I think it's the way with it is entrepreneurship, you know, Uh, you know, 10,000 hours equals, you know, maybe eight to 10 years. Yep. And I think that, and I, do you feel like you're a professional entrepreneur now? Yeah. I, I hate the word entrepreneur just being blunt. Just I do too. I, I hate it. It's a catch all of both. Like when someone tells me I'm an entrepreneur, I'm like, oh, so you don't do it. You're unemployed. 
Yeah. Because like, if you do something, you tell them what you do. You know what I mean? Like when people ask me, it's like, I run a marketing agency and a venture fund. Like that's what I do. I'm not an entrepreneur. That's yeah. what I do. So to me, it's, yeah, it doesn't mean much. But yes, I would say at this point, I'm a business owner and I think we've got, I've got enough objective data that we've done all right. Yeah. I feel the same with the word entrepreneur. I don't like it because it sounds highfalutin and like, you know, yeah. like uh, I, I usually will use the word I'm a business owner. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's a little bit better. I, I never liked that word entrepreneur. Um, so I agree with you, but yeah, I think that, you know, uh, being battle tested means a lot, right? Yep. So, all right. Well, good. That's all the time we have uh, today. I would like to thank so very much Eric Huberman from Hawk Media for coming on to today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And also, please give us a review. We've gotten so many fantastic reviews. I'm really thankful of them. And if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, please call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. Again, that's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. Eric, if anyone wants to get in touch with you or your firm, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, for the firm, it's just hawkmedia.com. You can sign up and get a free consultation, the book, The Hawk Method. And then for me, I'm just at or slash Eric Kuberman on pretty much every social channel. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today. Of course. And for for our listeners, if you're interested in getting a new business ideas, I tweet about lessons for business owners at S. Halasnik. It's S-H-A-L-A-S-N-I-K. And today, I think the talk, the takeaway from Eric really was, um, you know, you got to have a marketing plan. <laughs> you got to have a good marketing plan. Rather, you bring on Hawk to kind of do that. I mean, $2,000 a month, it's not a bad idea because, you know, their interest is to grow your company, which is your interest too. And um, if, you know, they're going to want to be successful and they're going to make you successful. And if marketing isn't your thing, either pick up, you know, Eric's book uh, or maybe consider talking to Hawk uh, Media and see what they have to say. And doesn't doesn't hurt to listen. So everybody have a fantastic day. Uh, keep plugging along. You're going to get there and just keep improving as an entrepreneur and as a business owner as well. Everybody have a great day.